Hello and welcome to the JS Bach Files, Episode 5. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to start our investigation of Bach's concertos. We know that Bach first began his serious study of Italian music in Weimar, everything from Italian operas and cantatas to the Italian concerto style, particularly as found in the works of Vivaldi. In Vivaldi's mature solo concerto style, which is the first type we're going to look at, the first movement is often described as in ritornello form. In ritornello form, the opening section is played by the entire orchestra, often with the soloist doubling the first violins. This opening ritornello generally presents the main themes or motives that will pop up again and again throughout the movement. The opening ritornello is followed by the first solo section, sometimes called episode, in which the soloist engages in virtuoso figuration. We'll hear some of examples of that in just a minute. Often quite flashy and sometimes making reference to the motives presented in the opening ritornello, and often modulating, sometimes rather quickly, through a series of closely related keys. The orchestra continues to be present during the solo section, along with the continuum, of course, but the texture, the thickness of the scoring, so to speak, is often reduced dramatically so that the soloist can be easily heard. This is particularly true of many of Vivaldi's solo concertos, a little less true of Bach's, who on the whole preferred busier and somewhat more contrapuntally active textures, even in the solo episodes. Following the first solo section, the ritornello, often labeled in the score tutti or ripieno, returns. It's usually recognizable because of the differences in volume. The entire orchestra is now playing, the thickness of the texture, and the fact that themes from the original ritornello are referenced. But it's usually not simply a copy of the original ritornello, and, unlike the original ritornello, it may well modulate around a bit. The second ritornello section is in turn followed by a second solo section, which may introduce new ideas in different sorts of virtuoso figuration. The final ritornello often begins much as the first does, but it's usually a bit shorter and drives to the final cadence with a great deal of energy. We'll take a closer look at Bach's Violin Concerto No. 1 in A minor, BWV 1041. It's usually assumed that this work was composed when Bach was employed at the court of Kirten and put so much emphasis on orchestral and chamber music at that time. But some scholars have suggested it may have been composed later at Leipzig. At any rate, it's certainly a mature work with a number of attractive features. The opening melodic statement is a powerful one with the initial mode of a dramatic ascending fourth, followed by an only slightly less dramatic gesture, an ascending minor second, and a start-stop-start-again rhythm. This is followed by a torrent of descending notes that end up an octave lower. Here's a stripped-down version of the opening motive, which we'll call Ritornello 1. You'll notice that I'm reproducing only the top line of the texture, played by orchestral first violins and the soloists together. I'm leaving out the lower voices, although they do contribute significantly to the harmonic support and rhythmic impetus of the opening ritornello. The next important motive follows immediately. It's a typical Baroque figuration pattern. The accented notes in a series of sixteenths show an ascending pattern, but after each ascending note, we immediately return to a repeated figure based on the tonic note, in this case A because we're in the key of A minor, and its lower neighbor, the note right below it. We'll call this motive Ritornello II, and it sounds like this. Now, of course, these little motives don't make much sense when isolated from the musical flow. 
but we'll see more clearly how these things connect when we put them all together. Okay, on to the next important motive. Obviously, scale lines, or patterns based on scale lines, descending or ascending, are going to play an important role in this in just about any movement. The figure that we just heard passes immediately into one of those scale-wise patterns, which we'll call Ritornello 3, and we'll hear it shortly. Ritornello 3 passes immediately to the next motive, really a more distinctive one because of its catchy rhythm and large ascending leap of an octave and a half. We'll call that Ritornello 4. Here's an example of Ritornello 3 going right into Ritornello 4. When we get to the actual excerpt, you'll notice that you'll often hear more than one motive going on at the same time in different parts, unlike my simplified versions. The soloist and first violin may be playing something based on motive 4, but the second violins might still be playing around with motive 3. Okay, these are the main motives for the first ritornello. You'll hear others in passing in one part or another, but these motives are primarily responsible for giving the first ritornello its distinctive character. As the rest of the section spins out, and after a couple of deceptive cadences to prolong the suspense, we finally come to a close on the dominant of A minor and prepare to hear the soloist take center stage. Now, let's hear how the opening ritornello all comes together in an excerpt from an actual performance. After the opening ritornello comes the first solo section, sometimes referred to as a solo episode. Does the solo violin introduce any new motives? Yes, right away. We'll call the first of these Solo 1. It starts with three quick pick-up 16th notes and moves on to a distinctive rhythmic pattern combining 16ths and tied 8ths. That two-bar motive is then sequentially repeated with its melodic peak moving up a step. Yes, it's new, but when the rest of the parts are added, which we'll do in a minute, it's undeniable that this new passage still sounds familiar. That's because the accompaniment provided by the rest of the strings rhythmically echoes the start-stop-start-again opening motive of the opening ritonello. The parts are distributed differently, in fact, in a way that is almost the opposite of the original motive in terms of who plays what, but the similarity is undeniable. As the scale passages you just heard from the soloists continue, the accompaniment provided by the second violins and violas reintroduces the opening ritornello theme by quoting its opening motive. They enter quietly at first, piano, and then repeat the motive more loudly, forte, although even then remaining secondary to the rapid scale passages and occasional dramatic leaps played by the soloist above them. After several bars of this, the ritornello motive drops out from underneath the soloist as it begins a new motive, which we'll call Solo 2, 
due in its details, that is, the exact intervals being played, but familiar in its general rhythmic identity, and which passes immediately to some arpeggio-based figurations, and, not surprisingly, then lapses into sequences. After eight bars of this new motive played by the soloist, the rest of the orchestra decides to go back and start the ritornello theme again, this time loudly and in a new key, C major, the relative major of A minor. Of course, we note that some elements of the ritornello theme already managed to sneak in beneath the violin solos and the solo section, but only piecemeal. This time, Bach really means it. This is the real second ritornello. So right now, we're going to hear the first solo section in a few measures into the second ritornello. These are the basic elements for this movement, and I'm going to deal with the rest of it pretty quickly. You'll notice that the arrival of the second ritornello played by the whole orchestra, which you just heard, doesn't really slow down the soloist, who plays right through it, sometimes with material derived from earlier motives and sometimes doubling the first violin part. By the end of the second ritornello, we've modulated E minor for the start of the second solo section. The second solo section, which I'm not going to play, doesn't stay in E minor very long, but moves through a series of keys, something we'd expect in a solo episode. This is by no means a carbon copy of the first soloist section, however. It's in a new key, of course, and although the soloist employs some of the same motives heard in the first solo section, there are new ones as well, or at least motives not found in the first solo section. Probably the most important of these is one that initially appeared in the orchestra Ritonello. We labeled it earlier as Ritonello II. The soloist ignored that motive in the first solo section, but appears to grow quite fond of it in the second. And by the way, to further confuse the issue, the orchestra pokes its nose in with the first motive of Ritonello I from time to time as well. It's just a truncated version, sort of like a false entrance, but it still adds to the confusion. After the solo section wraps up, the real ritornello section returns in the original key and sporting its familiar themes. It's easily recognizable, but far from an exact duplication of the first ritornello, but it does provide an energetic close to the movement. So, ritornello form, not the easiest formal pattern to describe. At first glance, it seems as if it should be simple enough. We have ritornellos where the whole orchestra plays, and we have solo sections, where the soloist is featured and dominates the texture. The problem is that the soloist sometimes intrudes upon the orchestra in the ritornellos, and the orchestral ritornello motives keep poking their noses into the solo sections. And some motives that originally appeared in the ritornello now make an appearance, even play an important role, in the solo sections, alongside of new motives that only appear in the solo sections. So, compared to some of the more predictable examples of Italian concerto form, Bach's approach to ritornello form, at least in this example, is much more flexible. The form of the middle movement of the violin concerto in A minor is quite different from that of the first. Instead of an alternation between orchestra ritornellos and solo sections, this slow movement marked andante, which is not that slow as slow movements go, 
is, like many other solo concerto movements, more like an aria for violin and orchestra. It begins with a very distinctive figure in the bass that consists of three staccato, or short repetitions of the tonic note, C major in this case, serving as a pedal under the mildly dissonant changing chords above it. These three staccato eighth notes are followed by a quicker ascending figure or flourish of sixteenths and thirty seconds. This is repeated four times in a row, the last time anchored on the dominant chord. As the first part of the motive repeats, the ascending figure sometimes moves higher or lower depending on the implied harmony. We'll hear just the first introductory motive by itself. After four bars of this introductory motive, the solos leaps in, with a highly florid melody, a veritable flurry of decorative arabesques starting on G, descending briefly, and then climaxing in a series of elegant triplets, replete with emotionally tinged, non-harmonic tones. Arguably, this isn't the real main theme, but looks ahead to it and sets the mood for it. After a couple of bars of this decorative arabesque, the bass motive returns for two measures, and we then get what seems like the real main theme. It too is very florid, begins with a sustained note, and then carries on with a stream of legato triplets. In our example, we'll hear the theme itself, but also the lowest voice in the texture accompanying it. At first, that's a viola in a gradually descending line, and then the cello when it returns with the introductory motive beneath it. You may have noticed that just as the second half of my example begins, where the viola once again becomes the lowest voice in the texture, that there is an unmistakable increase in the harmonic tension. Up until that part, the melodic and harmonic activity had been smooth and almost pastoral sounding. But after a few measures, when the viola returns, it introduces a chromatically descending bass line, one moving down by half steps, to which the solo violin melody and the other parts with it react by outlining a series of tension-inducing diminished seventh chords. The effect is unmistakable, although fairly short-lived, and it looks ahead to later passages in the movement, including one that comes up just a few bars later, in which diminished seventh chords play a large role. You also might have noticed that right at the end of my example, that distinctive opening bass motive returns again. In fact, it remains an off-and-on-again presence for the entire movement, sometimes only appearing for a bar or two before again yielding to the viola's descending line. As the movement continues, variants of the main theme recur, usually in the form of longer notes followed by streams of triplets in various keys, while Bach at times seems to luxuriate in the tension-producing effect of diminished seventh chords. Finally, the tension is released, and we return to the original key of C major, and 
the opening measures of the movement are repeated with the earlier dissonances now sounding positively mild after the extended use of diminished chords earlier in the movement. But when Bach does take us back to a more or less unadulterated version of the primary theme before the conclusion of the movement, it is, interestingly, in the wrong key, or at least based on the wrong chord, an F major chord, the subdominant in the key, rather than the expected tonic of C. Still, it sounds lovely, very serene, and at any rate, we're securely back in C major before you know it, and the gently rolling melodic triplets in the solo violin take the movement to its peaceful conclusion. We'll hear the first part of the movement. The finale, marked Allegro Assai, begins with a vigorous fugal section in 9-8 time, very much in the style and spirit of a gigue, the traditional 18th century dance that typically concludes suites and often concertos. The four-bar subject begins with an energetic leap of an ascending fourth, just like the first movement, and carries on with a flow of eighth notes, at first descending and then undulating gently, with a few large descending leaps and ascending triadic arpeggios breaking up the regularity we'll hear a sample of the opening fugue subject. The fugue subject is accompanied by a counter-subject. Think of it as an escort that accompanies the subject wherever it goes. In this case, the counter-subject is sounded beneath the subject in the viola. But later, when instruments lower in the texture take up the subject in invitation, then the countersubject may appear higher in the first violins, for example. Here's a sample of the fugue subject again, this time accompanied by its countersubject, the most distinctive figure of which may be its repeated notes in the third bar. Okay, now we're going to hear a little of what the actual fugal imitation sounds like as we get a little deeper into the movement. Once again, my example doesn't show everything that's going on. We'll hear the subject in the first violins doubled by the soloist, the counter subject in the violas, and then after a few bars, 
the second violins beginning the fugal invitation, the theme sounding a fifth higher, or mostly a perfect fifth higher, certain adjustments are made so that this first answer, as it is sometimes called, fits into the prevailing harmony. At the last minute, you'll hear the cellos come in with the subject back on the original pitch level. gets rather busy very quickly, and that's with my examples leaving out some very important activity, namely the continual bass line played by the cellos that anchors the harmonic movement in the first few measures. So now let's hear what the opening fugal section sounds like with everyone playing. might have been able to hear that even after the actual imitation comes to an end. There is something of a tale to this section in which certain parts of both the subject and the countersubject were bandied about as the music moved toward the dominant in preparation for the first solo section. So this first fugal section acts as something of a ritornello played by the entire orchestra preparing the way for the first solo section. The first solo section immediately presents us with two new ideas. The first is not terribly distinctive, plunging quickly down an A minor triad before rising up again, but the second is more distinctive, featuring a trill and a leap to dissonance, both of which are to recur in various forms in a number of different contexts as the movement progresses. Here's an example of these two motives as they appear right at the beginning of the soloist section. I'm leaving in the cello part so you can get a sense of the harmonic context. As usual, my example goes by a little slower than most actual recordings do, but that dissonance created by that second motive, a major seventh above the bass, is still quite distinctive at any speed. Other musical figures are quickly introduced, including some that flash by very quickly, but the two motives I just played are crucial in terms of defining the identity of the solo sections. After repeating those bars a step higher, the soloist abandons the idea, for a little while at least, and introduces some faster-moving scale-wise passages alternating with more leisurely triadic arpeggios. We'll hear now the solo section in an actual recording. Thank you. 
After the first solo section, an abbreviated ritornello eventually returns in E minor, overlapping with a final flourish from the soloist, but it doesn't last long before the soloist interrupts it, and, as the soloist then proceeds, moving through other keys, fragments of the orchestral ritornello theme appear and reappear beneath the soloist. Another return of the ritornello theme back in A minor seems at first glance to be a little more serious, with the fugal subject accompanied by its counter-subject, but we never get back to a full-scale fugal treatment of the theme, and the soloist once again soon takes control. The solo sections seem to get more preoccupied with demonstrating virtuosity as they go. Uniquely violinistic figuration patterns moving rapidly across the strings are prominent and later a favorite device of Bach's and others that consists of quick reiterations of a central note on different strings is given feature treatment. The momentum pauses briefly for Cecure or hold, but we launch back in with another short version of the ritornello, again in A minor. But by now we know what will happen. The soloist will interrupt before any serious fugal imitation can begin. Only in the final measures, after the soloist has exhausted its repertoire of violinistic tricks, do we get a serious return to the ritornello with actual fugal imitation and play, which drives us to our final cadence. Taken as a whole, this is an extraordinarily effective concerto, whether composed in Kirtan or later in Leipzig. While it's true that the basic outlines of the form have been inherited from Bach's Italian precursors, Vivaldi most notably, the fact remains that Bach has injected so many unique features and distinctive qualities that he makes the form and the style completely his own. Bach's second violin concerto in E major shares a number of stylistic attributes with his first, but also provides some very distinctive qualities of its own. The opening ritornello of the first movement presents us with four important motivic ideas almost immediately. It began simply enough with a stately ascending arpeggio of the tonic chord and quarter notes in the first bar. The second motive moves a bit faster, with a mixture of eighth notes and sixteenths, still rooted on the tonic triad, but connecting those notes with passing tones. That flows right into the third bar, and the third motivic idea which is the fastest moving of the three, all sixteenth notes, starting with an undulating descending sequential pattern before ripping off an ascending scale line in preparation for the next important motive. We'll save that one for later. Here's an example showing the first three motives. Harmonically, the opening is just about as simple. It uses only three chords, and they're among the most common in any key, the tonic chord to securely establish tonality, and then the so-called subdominant chord, built on the fourth scale degree, and the dominant on the fifth scale degree, the second most important chord in the key. The next important motive is more notable for its rhythmic energy than anything else. It starts in the second half of the third bar, charging up the scale to some rapidly repeating sixteenth notes, a figure very reminiscent of some of Vivaldi's most famous themes. I said that the movement is initially pretty simple from a harmonic point of view, but that changes somewhat already by the fourth bar. At that point, the harmonic rhythm picks up, and Bach starts charging through a sequence of chords, each a fourth higher or fifth lower than the one before, the so-called circle of fifths. This sort of harmonic progression is hardly novel, of course. Baroque composers, and plenty of others, have employed progressions like this innumerable times, but it's great for establishing forward momentum, and that's just what it does here.
Those are the four motives that dominate the opening ritonello. Now let's hear the first part in a recorded version. The form of this movement is actually an unusual one for the first movement of a concerto. It resembles a da capo aria with three large sections, the second in the relative minor, and clearly contrasting, and the third just a repetition of the first, indicated in the score by the symbol DC. In some scores, this first section is completely written out again, but Bach uses the da capo designation in his score. Nevertheless, as experienced, the form initially seems quite standard. We just heard the Riccinello, where the whole orchestra presents the main thematic material, and we expect a solo section to follow. And in fact, a solo section does follow. The first solo section begins by quoting the opening of the first Riccinello, that is, the stately arpeggio of the tonic chord, against the second Riccinello motive played by the first and second violins. But the solo immediately leaves it behind for a more elaborate flourish, and we'll call that Solo One. But things are less predictable from this point on. After just a few bars, it seems as if the ritornello is returning in the original key of E major, but after two and a half bars, the soloist takes off with arpeggio scale lines and quotations of motive three. Still, the orchestra is persistent and refuses to simply provide a functional background for the soloist's meanderings. Instead, it keeps inserting motives from the Riccinello quite persistently and at times quite noisily, especially the Vivaldian motive four. In fact, it seems again and again as if the orchestra is bound and determined to launch into a full-scale Riccinello, but it is always somehow sidetracked by the soloist. This goes on until we hit the official middle section of the aria-like form in C-sharp minor. Here the motives from the opening Ritonello are not completely abandoned, but they play a much less important role, and the mood is rather different, in part because the continual bass line has a new syncopated identity. The soloist dominates here with, at least initially, little serious competition from the orchestra, mostly flashy passage work. The entire orchestra does eventually enter with a C-sharp minor presentation of the Ritonello theme. Not quite the whole thing, but certainly enough to get noticed, and... Although the soloist continues to dominate with its rapid arpeggios, working eventually into the instrument's higher range, motive two from the ritornello is a persistent and lively accompaniment figure. At one point, the accompanying texture is reduced dramatically, and the soloist launches into some new figuration patterns with double stops, new but referencing the familiar motive two rhythm. The texture thickens again as the orchestral first violins fall in with the soloist for a while, and, near the end of the section, dynamic contrasts come fast and furious, right before a dramatic change in tempo to adagio introduces a cadenza-like passage by the soloist, signaling that the middle section is over and we're about to repeat the entire A section. We'll hear the solo section and its many interruptions by the whole orchestra all the way through to the beginning of the middle section. Thank you. 
The slow movement in C-sharp minor, marked adagio, begins with an ostinato, a repeated figure in the bass line, not unlike the one that began the slow movement from the A minor concerto. The harmonic context is simpler here, at least initially, but the moving figure at the bottom of the texture allows for at least a modicum of rhythmic energy, despite the very slow tempo. We'll hear that repeated pattern in just a minute. The violin solos comes in after a six-bar introduction with a long sustained G-sharp, the fifth scale degree in the key, which blossoms after a couple of bars into a florid figure mixing 16th and 32nd notes in a pattern that will become quite familiar as the movement progresses. Here's a stripped-down example, I'm leaving out the inner parts again, in which you can hear both the repeated bass ostinato figure and the first few bars of the solo violin's initial statement. As you would expect for a slow movement, which is another example of an aria for solo instrument, the solo violin dominates throughout the movement with its lyrical escapades, often based on the rhythmic motive you just heard or a recognizable variant of it, sometimes although with the main element shifted around a bit. There are modulations, of course. The first new key is not expectedly E major, the relative major of C-sharp minor, although we don't stay there very long. The ostinato-like bass motive comes and goes, and the texture sometimes features the higher strings, but one constant, or near constant, is Bach's extraordinarily expressive use of accented non-harmonic tones, which tends to keep the emotional temperature high throughout much of the movement. Like any technique, the use of accented non-harmonic tones can be overplayed, in which case they'll lose the desired effect or become simply cloying. But Bach takes care to avoid that situation. He regularly provides contrasting passages of lyrical tranquility so that the passages of more demanding emotional intensity that follow seem more compelling. We'll hear the beginning of the movement.
The finale, back in E major and marked Allegro Sai, is in rondo form. That is A, B, A, C, A, D, A, E, A, with A being the orchestral ritonello and B through E being the soloist episodes, all differentiated, although some motives do appear in more than one episode. It's all remarkably precise, neat, and symmetrical. All but one of the sections is 16 bars long, the final solo episode doubling that length. Perhaps most remarkably, considering the other allegro movements we've looked at, is the fact that there are no interpenetrations between the orchestral ritonello and solo sections. In fact, you might almost think that over-predictability could become a problem. The ritonello melody is an attractive, if unremarkable, tune, dance-like in its sprightliness, but devoid of any strikingly distinctive features, and basically a scarcely differentiated stream of sixteenth notes in three-year time. And, through all of its repetitions, this melody never deviates significantly from its original identity. What saves the movement from over-regularity is the solo sections. Although the solo sections do resemble one another and their use of predominantly scale-wise motives, Bach manages to give each a different quality, and in fact they get more interesting as the movement progresses, particularly in their use of multiple stops. The last solo section is the climax in every respect, with its dazzling multiple stops, strongly shaped melodic contours, quick silver rhythms, and some rapid fluctuations in dynamics. It may be no more than a clever movement and a zestful finish to the concerto, but on that level it is extremely effective. We'll hear the opening ritornello and the first solo episode. We'll turn now to Bach's remarkable double concerto in D minor, BWV 1043, for two violin soloists and orchestra. This is one of Bach's most popular concertos, and for good reason. It's a unique combination of drama, excitement, and lush lyricism. The excitement begins right away with movement one and the first theme of the opening ritornello, marked vivace, which is in the form of a fugue. We've seen fugal ritornellos before, but this initial fugue theme is unusually complex, sporting remarkable rhythmic, melodic, and harmonic variety in just the first few measures. We'll hear first the opening eight bars. The theme itself, played by the orchestral second violins together with the second solo violin, is made up of a combination of scale passages and leaps, but it's the exuberant leaps that catch the ear here and later in the solo section. After four bars, the first violins, both orchestral and solo, enter up a fifth with the so-called fugal answer, pushing the tonal center temporarily up to A minor. My scaled down example here will show the fugal subject and the continual bass line, which is quite active and which also provides motives that are used again and again in the course of the movement. For clarity's sake, I'm leaving out the viola part, but it's actually quite active as well.
A few bars after the first violins enter with the fugal subject, the cellos and basses do the same, but back in D minor. While against this, the orchestral and solo violins are weaving a tapestry of undulating 16th note passages and longer sustained notes. Bach engages in a particularly clever ploy after the cellos and basses have run their imitative course by starting up a version of the fugue subject again in the second violins, but maneuvering it in such a way that it actually appears to take the key into a new tonal area, G minor. But in the end, it's just a holding action, designed to provide some tonal variety and makes the final return of the theme back in D minor by the first violins feel fresh and new again. Following all of this is the first solo section. The texture is thinned down considerably at this point, at least for a while, as the first violin soloist engages in a striking series of large, spiky ascending leaps, followed by a rapid and equally dramatic descending line. The melodic activity seems to be taking place on dual planes, one implied descending melody high in the violin's range, and another similar descending line in the lower range, both occurring simultaneously. Bach is a master of this sort of melodic dualism. We're going to hear it elsewhere in this movement and in a number of other instrumental works as well. After a couple of bars, the dramatic leaps give way to a somewhat more restrained series of undulating 16th notes sequenced above a circle of fifths harmonic pattern. And then the second violin jumps in to do it all over again, although this time the passage is enriched considerably by a frenetic counterpoint in the first violins, which is equally prone to large, dramatic leaps. From this point on, things are perhaps not quite as orderly as in some of the other Ritornello form movements we've looked at. The solo violins proceed with a series of variants of the motives from the opening Ritornello theme, and the orchestra also contributes fragments from the same Ritornello theme in support. But the opening Ritornello is never fully stated, and before we know it, we're treated to a new solo section, this time in A minor, where the two solo violins proceed much as before. After this second solo section, we do get a glimpse of the real Ritonello, but it too is in A minor rather than the original key of D minor, and it's snapped off after only four bars for yet another solo section, although this one has a new sustained accompaniment from the orchestral strings. In solo sections like this, the first impression is that of an inexhaustible supply of ideas. It's only if you look or listen a little more closely that you realize that so many of these ideas, these motives and themes, are in fact connected to earlier motives and to each other. So when Bach is praised for his motivic economy, as he often is, it's not that anyone is making an excuse for some paucity of ideas. He simply couldn't think of new themes. It's really just the opposite. Bach's ideas seem to be endless and endlessly fascinating. It's just that they also seem to be intimately connected with one another. As we approach the end of the movement, the original solo section returns in, cl in close to its pristine state, and the opening orchestral ritornello takes a final bow. But there's no time for one last bit of invitation. It's cut off after just four bars and provides the final cadence of the movement. We'll hear, in an actual performance, the opening ritornello and the first solo section.
We move on to movement two, marked Largo, Ma Non Tanto, in F major, 12-8 meter. This is one of Bach's most famous slow movements, and for good reason. The key signature in meter suggests a lilting, pastoral movement, and the music doesn't disappoint. As Bach scholar Malcolm Boyd has written, the soloists interweave their beguiling melodic lines almost in the manner of an operatic love duet above a gently lulling accompaniment. Let's take a closer look at the first of the two extraordinary themes that Bach makes use of in this movement. The melody for the first theme, in and of itself, devoid of harmonic context, has a simple, straightforward, yet serene nobility about it, moving cautiously down an F major scale. The accompanying continual chords are similarly straightforward as they support a gradually ascending scale starting on F but moving slowly and graced initially by an octave leap once each new scale degree is reached. How then does this simple, if hesitating, descending melodic line in the second solo violin combine with an equally simple ascending line in the continual bass to create such a remarkable effect? The answer may well lie in the delicate suspended dissonances we find on the weak beat in the measure, beats two and four. These are not harsh dissonances, not dramatic dissonances, but they are supremely effective dissonances in this context and for the purpose of lending a gentle sense of yearning to the overall effect. After the initial statement of this theme by the second solo violin, the first solo violin imitates it up a fifth. While the harmony is duplicated in the temporary new key of C major, the second solo violin then weaves beneath the soaring first violin melody a wonderful counter-melody of lyrical sixteenths that further embroider the prevailing harmony with an additional layer of unaccented passing tones, providing an increased sense of motion and just the slightest additional touch of gentle dissonance. Let's hear a scaled-down example of the opening measures. The fourth bar of my example probably wouldn't strike anyone as the most interesting part of this very interesting theme, but it's the motive introduced in the middle of the fourth bar in the first solo violin, along with the undulating sixteenth note countermelody beneath it, that Bach chooses to spin out for the next few measures as he begins to modulate initially toward B-flat, eventually to D minor. It doesn't take long before the original theme begins to reappear, though, trading off with exchanges of the undulating sixteenths between the two solo violins. And eventually, in measure 17, the second major theme appears, one that is just as gorgeous as the first and even more overtly emotional. Here's another simplified example. Violin 1 nominally has the main melody here, but the contribution of the second violin is just as integral, echoing its most pregnant ascending motive, but staccato rather than slurred, and adding another layer of poignant, even sensuous, non-harmonic tones. This new theme is really only a couple of bars long, and before it recurs, Bach allows a passage of undulating sixteenths to intervene. After this second, almost magical theme appears for the second time, Variants of the undulating 16th passage referred to earlier take control for a number of measures, 
before the first theme eventually returns in the second solo violin in A minor, a new key, giving it, of course, a very different quality. We get one more poignant glimpse of the brief but emotionally powerful second theme before the first theme returns in the original key of F major and the movement comes to a graceful close. We'll hear the movement in an actual performance up to the first occurrence of the second theme. Movement three, marked Allegro, is a driving, intense movement in D minor that begins with closely spaced, near-canonic imitation, which lends a hurried quality to the opening section. Also contributing to the sense of restlessness is what at times appears to be metric ambiguity. The entire movement is written in 3-4 time, but the rhythmic punctuations delivered by the orchestra in support of the two soloists seem frequently to suggest more of a duple division. We'll hear first a sample of the first four-bar phrase played by first solo violin alone in my example, followed after a brief pause by a sample of the two soloists playing in canonic imitation, as the score is actually written.
The next phrase, also a near-canonic invitation, introduces a new motive, an interestingly syncopated one that already tends to pull the music away from the key of D minor, and which then launches into a stream of sixteenth notes which resembles the opening motive we just heard, but expands that idea in a new direction. Here's a sample of the second motive and its subsequent expansion of the original sixteenth note motive slowed down a bit for the sake of clarity. You may have noticed that at the end of my example, both solo violins begin to introduce 16th note triplets into their rhythmic flow, a device that takes on greater significance as the movement proceeds. I'm going to play one more example, the initial motive played by the first solo violin at the beginning of the first solo section. It certainly resembles earlier motives in spirit, but its prominent large ascending leaps give it a certain distinctive quality, even though it trails off with a flow of sixteenths not unlike what we've heard before several times. Other interesting elements are yet to be encountered, for example the powerful sounding double stops in both solo violins that forcefully reiterate a dominant seventh chord as the rest of the orchestra plays with motives derived from the solo section. But most of what the rest of the movement presents to us is derived, usually pretty clearly, from the musical ideas we've already discussed. We'll hear the opening of the movement. That's it for today. In our next episode, we'll begin our investigation of the well-known Brandenburg Concertos.